Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Today we're going to be looking at a vitally important aspect of Napoleon's success and one of his most impressive traits as a commander, his ability to motivate and inspire those under his command. I am very fortunate today to be joined by Malia Ogawa, a teacher, writer and self-proclaimed historian currently living abroad in Japan. She originally hails from Seattle, Washington in the US, but has also lived abroad in Paris and London, where she got her MA in modern history at King's College London. She did an undergrad thesis on the Japanese-American experience during World War II and her MA dissertation on, significantly for us, on the Napoleonicist, Napoleon, his soldiers and the construction of Napoleonic military culture. Malia, how have you been? Good, good. It's nighttime here and it's cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, welcome to the Napoleonicist. It's great to have a new face um, from the repertoire. Uh, let's start with the basics in a kind of a nod back to Napoleon month in November. Just kind of briefly outline for people what your view is on Napoleon the man, first of all. Um, okay, so the first time I found out about Napoleon was when I was 16 and I was taking AP Euro, European history. AP is advanced placement, it's college credit for high school to university. And I was like, this guy is super cool. He just rose up and was like, I'm gonna take over Europe. And he did basically. So that was kind of what made me really interested in him. I always thought Louis XIV was interesting too because he was an absolute monarch. So I think um, kind of 
absolutionism absolutionism is um, interesting to me. And then as I've studied him more and more, I find him just like really interesting. I have a book of his love letters to Josephine and he was like so passionate, very emotional. Um, in my notes here, I wrote down one of the quotes that he has in his letters that always kind of stuck with me. And it was, uh, je me réveille plein de toi. Like, I woke up filled with you. I was like, wow, that's super passionate, really emotional. Uh, he was really smart. I always admire intelligent people. And I like the way that he rose up through the ranks. Um, his family was, you know, minor aristocracy, but they weren't rich. He was from Corsica, he was an outsider. Uh, maybe it's the American in me or the millennial, but the, um, the whole like earning his stripes by just being awesome instead of my position and my family and stuff like that. I thought that was really cool. And then just how he was able to kind of take over everything and be like, yo, I'm the emperor now. I don't know, I liked that. <laughs> Fair enough. I kind of feel we should have had you on for Napoleon. I think you and Luke Daily Groves would have gotten incredibly well. Um, perhaps, perhaps less so with Marcus, because as, as is well known, he's a, a Napoleon sceptic. Now, Napoleon, he's famous for his kind of incredible ability when it came to his, his rhetoric, either in person or in his propaganda. What in your research did you find to be unique about his way of doing you know, propaganda, if you like, whether it's verbally or through print culture? Okay, so this is going to be my longest answer. Um, I've, just a disclaimer, I wrote my dissertation four or five years ago, and all of my research is at home in Seattle. So I've only had my actual dissertation to look at to answer all of this. Uh, so just a disclaimer in case there's something I can't answer. So something that was unique about his style I found was how much he praised his men. Kind of reminded me of the everyone gets a trophy trope of being a millennial. <laughs> so everyone's special. Um, but you know, most of the soldiers probably didn't live very long after so they didn't develop the same millennial complexes. Um, he talks about like the blood of the French, their superiority. That reminded me of Japan during World War II. Turn Japan now. <laughs> um, he was super dramatic. Um, I'm I'm very dramatic myself. It's probably because I'm American. I don't know. Um, he used repetition a lot, and I have some notes written down that I'm just gonna read if that's cool. It's about his written propaganda and also like his speaking. So he used active voice and he had a very comprehensive yet forceful tone that was consistently patriotic and positive. Uh, this reminded me a bit of Trump who I hate and didn't vote for, um, but he, some of the some of the people, some of the Japanese students I have, they say he speaks so easily for us to understand. And Napoleon did that too. 
his prose could be easily understood by the public, um, except he spoke in full sentences and used real grammar. Um, and he glorified the actions of his soldiers and himself by using a lot of hyperbole and descriptive style. Um, he delivered his speeches with so much passion and dramatic flair um, to promote a strong sense of military values and motivation within his men, as well as reinforce their morale with inspiring visions of honor and glory. So there were a few keywords that he always repeated with that held just all this emotional power to magnify battles with a sense of heroic military glory, patriotic sentiment, or even to assure soldiers of their own self-worth. Like you guys did a really good job. Um, so let's see, some of the words he used the most, the most enduring and potent words, as I said in my dissertation, I'm quoting myself, <laughs> is digne, uh, if I said that okay, worthy, ose, to dare, Okay, this word's a bit tricky for a non-French native to say. Le l'orgueil, pride, and l'épopée, epic. I also noticed he used patrie, which is like patriotism, homeland, song, which is blood, and gloire, gloire, a lot, glory. Um, one of his most consistent expressions of praise was, soldat, je suis content de vous. Like soldiers, I am happy with you. I'm happy with you. That was really consistent. Um, he focused a lot on soldiers. He spoke about their futures filled with victory, glory, honor, and peace. He used parents as motivation um, because later on in my dissertation, the conclusion I drew about um, motivation, aside from all of Napoleon's rhetoric, is that filial love, um, love for your family, your home, that's what drove them to fight because they fought, then they could go home. Everything would be cool again. Uh, there would be peace. They could see their fam. It would be really awesome. So I have a quote here by him. It says, la paix de l'Europe, le bonheur de vos parents seront les raisons de votre courage. So, the peace of Europe, the happiness of your parents will be a result of your courage. So he tells them stuff like this. He's always talking about how great the French soldiers are. They're so inspiring. Uh, you guys are the best soldiers of them all. There's something special about French blood. Um, he also acknowledged their hardships. And he's like, I know that stuff is hard. Um, me personally, I like it when my leader acknowledges my hardships, so I feel seen as an employee um, or a person. Um, he also acknowledged the accomplishments of his troops, something else that I as a person like being acknowledged for. I think most people do. I think he was pretty clever in that his whole motivation was focused on the soldiers. He knew if I can keep these guys happy and motivated, that's how I'm gonna win a lot of my battles. Uh, so he praised them a lot. He acknowledged them. 
he uh, talked about their accomplishments. He had this whole system of merits. That's how he created the Legion d'Honneur, the Legion of Honor, which is still France's highest honor you can receive today. Um, and just like how he rose through merit, you could earn it by merit. So you didn't have to be an aristocrat to get that. You had to work hard, um, accomplish things, you would get that. If you become a member of the Legion of Honor, you get special privileges. Um, I thought it was a bit funny how Napoleon got rid of the Ancien Regime. And, well, though he didn't get rid of it, but, you know, that French Revolution. Um, it was like, it wasn't there. And then he created his own little court. And he was like, I'm the emperor. It's different than king. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of badass. <laughs> That's something I would do. <laughs> and so these people could be part of the court. Um, so it was slightly hypocritical. I, I will say it's hypocritical, but I did kind of find it amusing. Um, let's see. He projected this image of himself as a mythical savior and hero. Heroic and illustrious, yet essentially human. That was seen a lot in his uh, print propaganda. Um, he had this huge focus on honor, like I said, merit-based reward system. He gave um, his men, the different units had les ags, which are eagles. Everyone had a different eagle. Uh, the eagles became objects of worship. And if you did something bad, your eagle is going to be ashamed of you, stuff like that. Kind of like, um, I don't know, what's the closest comparison I can think of? Maybe like in Game of Thrones, how they all have houses. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a super good comparison, but they all have their special house flag and all of his troops had their special eagles. When you, um, you say that, I mean, recently I was doing a, an interview um, for another podcast on, on Wellington and I likened his career from 1815 onwards to being like the last season of Game of Thrones where you've got Waterloo goes really well and then everything after that just kind of falls apart a little bit so I'm with you with the Game of Thrones comparison. <laughs> yeah and then you know the people who know Game of Thrones but don't know history that much they might understand better I don't know. Um, fun fact on the side, King's College London was founded by the Duke of Wellington, and I was handed my diploma by the current one, and I lived right next to Waterloo in Southwark, and a pub for, like, Lord Nelson was right near my place while I was doing all this research, and I was like, cool. <laughs> all of his enemies. <laughs> yeah, so let's see, do I have anything else to say about this okay something else he liked to be a man of the people so he was an expert in soldiers slaying apparently um there's this one myth it's probably a myth that he came across um some soldier who was supposed to be guarding something and the soldier had fallen asleep so napoleon decided to stand guard for the soldier you know man of the people I don't know if that is true um, because a lot of the sources I read were either secondary or primary sources of soldiers that were super into him. So I didn't come across a lot of criticism of Napoleon, which makes it a bit difficult 
to be able to say whether he was actually like this or not. I like to think that he was, he very much put on a face like for the men, but I wonder if he was actually like that behind closed doors, you know? Uh, um, let's see. Oh, I have a little bit of rhetoric for you, if you would like to hear it. Go for it. Yeah, so at Austerlitz, uh, when he won, it was also the, what's it called? Anniversary of when he was crowned emperor. And he says his classic line, Soda, je suis content de vous. And then he says, he goes on to say, il suffira de dire, j'étais à la bataille d'Austerlitz pour vous, quand vous répondre, voilà en bref. So, on yeah, I think I said that right. Um, basically, he's saying, soldiers, I'm super happy with you, and blah, 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 blah. It will be sufficient to say, I was at Austerlitz. This is if they're talking to non-soldiers. And those people will respond, wow, here's a brave man. Voila un brave. <laughs> yeah, so he always was pumping them up all the time. When I was doing my research, I had a little book that I got in France, and it was just all of his speeches. Not all, um, a lot of his speeches. Nah, that book's home in Seattle, so I only have the quotes from my dissertation available to me. But I remember reading a lot of them, and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And I did all of my primary research in French because I thought it would be more authentic. My French is a bit rusty now since I live in a different country that doesn't speak French. Well, you um, say that, but I mean, the running joke on the Napoleonicist is that any time I pronounce something in another language, whether it's French, German, Spanish, you name it, I murder the pronunciation. So I think the listeners just gonna be delighted that somebody can actually pronounce French properly on this podcast. <laughs> it's clearly gonna be the first time. I've it's got... easier when I've been drinking, <laughs> I'll say that, <laughs> but yeah. I think that's about all I have to say about that. Um, I had some, a few other things. Uh, he had these bulletins, bulletins, um, that were kind of like a news sheet, and uh, they were they were basically like a newspaper. People in France could get it. People outside of France would get it. He depicted war as a grand romantic adventure in it. Um, he always called himself Emperor or Sa Majesté. What did he say about France? He was talking about how France is, um, France was like the savior of Europe. France was superior. Um, the French were bringing the revolutionary principles of liberté and égalité, freedom and equality, and its enlightened principles of government to the get this, more backwards and entrapped populations of their foreign European neighbors. And this was determined by a sense of French cultural superiority. Uh, this reminded me of Japan uh, in like 1930s, 1940s so much, because <laughs> they did that to Korea and China. Um, yeah. And you know, just Britain to other people, America to other people. Everyone does it at some point or the other, but I found that a bit amusing because so predictable. Yeah. Um, he also kind of lied a bit about battles in his bulletins. 
they lost, he wouldn't admit that they lost. He wouldn't, he would just put out what, I guess the trending word right now is fake news. I hate using that word. <laughs> Classic propaganda. Fake news has been around since before the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's interesting that you pick up on the fake news thing, the reluctance to accept when an individual's been defeated, um, the the ability to kind of speak with a charismatic flair that people really latch onto. <laughs> a few significant markers with a certain outgoing US president. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I guess the big difference is that Napoleon was really positive and uh, that other guy is not. Napoleon, he tried to maintain positivity. Um, we're doing so great. Everything is great. Um, yeah, I guess he didn't have news um, printing stuff about him because he controlled everything. So I wonder if it would have gone a bit that way too, if other people were saying stuff. Yeah, and the other significant thing that you mentioned earlier was that Napoleon was a highly, highly intelligent individual, um, really on the ball, which you could quite powerfully argue might not be the case with uh, Mr. Mr. Trump. Um, but hey, let, let's not make this political, even though that, that's yeah. exactly what I've just gone and done. Um, you mentioned earlier about the kind of the heroic language. Do you think he had a hero complex? Or is it just kind of um, arrogance or, or bluster? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because definitely, yes, uh, from my secondary sources. Could, could you say that someone who constantly portrays themselves as a hero and man of the people has the hero complex? I feel like if you're always saying that about yourself, even if you don't at the beginning, it's going to develop. And I was also struck by what you said about how there isn't much criticism. I mean, that's really interesting. Why do you think that's the case? Is it about the kind of the culture around what was and wasn't going to be published in the years after the, the Napoleonic Wars? Why do we seem to have fewer contemporary sources criticizing Napoleon? Um, I'm not sure. I feel like the place where we would have found the most criticism would have been in the letters. And I don't know how all of the letters I read in the archives were chosen. So it could have been that people were critical and those letters were destroyed, or it could have been that they were critical but didn't want to write it down. So that's kind of my thought. I have, there's this one guy's memoirs who I read um, and he, he kind of reminded me of myself. I feel like if I had been going to battle, I would have been him. He was walking around uh, Lille before going off to Germany, early 1800s. And he was admiring the architecture and thinking about like the history of that town. He was also kind of pissed that he had to go off to war. He was like, why? And in his bio, he fought in the Imperial Guard and he went, I think it was either he did go to Russia or right before he was sent to Russia, he went home and got a replacement because he was done. He fought in the Iberian Wars and that changed him. 
I was trying to reread his memoirs before this, and I only got to like his trip to Germany. And there's this one scene that I distinctly remember when I was reading his stuff like five years ago. And he was with a friend fighting against the guerrilla warfare people. And one of his friends got killed and he was seized by this just like this rage and this like craziness that just made him lose lose his mind. Uh, he just started like charging that guy and like slaughtered him. And um, he he wasn't he did not have a positive outlook on going to war. He was saying stuff like, "I'm not going to see my homeland again without hope without hope of seeing my homeland." So he is one of the negative people I came across. So in my third chapter in my dissertation, that's where I talk about the soldiers. And most of the guys in here, it's them talking about how much they love Napoleon in different ways. Um, and then different reasons for why they went to war. But there was one guy who didn't care about the Legion of Honor. Napoleon offered it to him and he was like, nah, I want to see my fam. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's why I'll fight you. He was like, I don't need these, these special awards. I don't need your special social class. I just want to go home. So these are like the little negatives I found. I mean, that's interesting because as you say, the moment when you would expect, well, I, don't, I actually I don't know if that's true specifically of the French army because you've got the Bourbon restoration. So perhaps there is an inclination to uh, criticize Napoleon mm -hmm. um, in the years after Waterloo, but certainly, I mean, all I can base this on is my reading of the British sources where because you have uh, eventually a victory for allied forces against France, the points where you see criticism are actually the sources that are contemporaneous to the events. So yeah. in the run up to um, significant battles where troops are experiencing setbacks, that's the point where they really rail against um, their commanders and, and the venom really starts to, to come out. But as I say, perhaps that's not particularly true of the French example because you've got the glory days and then you've got the, the Bourbon restoration. Do you think that's, that's a factor? Um, yeah, I, honestly, I don't know. My research kind of stopped um, right before the wars ended. 
I do know that uh, France like super venerates Napoleon. They're obsessed with him. Um, when I was doing this research and learning about all of his wars, I realized that all of the Paris metro stations are named after his battles. And then I've heard that Animal Farm by George Orwell in France, France changed the name of the pig from Napoleon to something else. Yeah. <laughs> Did they change it to Wellington by any chance? Just to really kind of <gasps> produce a little detail. Yeah, I don't know. That would be, that would be something to Google later. Uh, a French person told me this, and I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, that they changed the name. Mm -hmm. But even um, even in New Orleans, I came across a street called Jenna. Yeah, because um, they have a Napoleon house in New Orleans that I went to. Had a great time there. Um, they wanted Napoleon to escape to New Orleans, and they were super ready for him to get there. Uh, but he died before he could make it there. So New Orleans has like some Napoleon fascination as well. Well, I suppose that goes back to Louisiana purchases and all of that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Napoleon. You gave us a lot of the country. One of the main ways that Napoleon's word spread quite easily um, was through print. But mm -hmm. you've mentioned about his oratorical ability. Did he tend to deliver speeches in person? Oh, yeah. He delivered speeches in person probably when he was saying, Soda, uh, what was it? Je suis content de vous. Yeah, so he delivered speeches in person. He tried to talk to the soldiers in person a lot too. Um, go and be a man of the people, uh, interact with them, tug on their earlobes. He would uh, try and be all, I'm super man of the people. So yes, he would deliver a lot of the speeches in person and he made sure to show himself to the troops a lot and i have this there was this one soldier i had who like was obsessed with him and he wrote something about just napoleon walking past him and he was like oh my god this guy oh yes yes so great <laughs> yeah so he had just like being there really had an impression on a lot of his soldiers especially uh, Jean-Pierre Chauvin, he's an artillery soldier at Austerlitz, and he was always inspired by his presence. So he said, uh, here, I have, I found my quote. He was in attendance at the celebration for Napoleon's coronation anniversary at Austerlitz. We know Austerlitz was super awesome. That's when he said that speech. So I guess a lot of my um, good rhetoric comes from this. Uh, so he described in awe, le cri de vive l'empereur, mais le cri de, oh God, I don't know French numbers, 80, 80 mille hommes se dans un seul noise. So he's saying that the cries of vive l'empereur, uh, they were the cries of 80,000 men, but it all came into one, one noise, one single noise, um, something about, one single flame i don't know something was lit up and it turned into one single flame so this guy was super responsive to napoleon's presence his his speeches just like his hero complex yeah i mean you just kind of answered my next question which was going to be you know does oh, this work sorry. with no that's that's fine that's great um in terms of inspiring people 
is there any sense does the print work better than the speech in person i mean my sense but you know i'm not an expert on this would be that it's napoleon's presence that really has the effect on people yes he can put things in print but actually being there and having that interpersonal connection which he was so good with was the thing that really tipped things is that borne out by your research yeah i think so because um the soldiers and stuff who i read about they would talk about him seeing him etc stuff like that when i was looking at the the bulletins and his other print things it was more talking about the written word of it and how he would distribute it to um other other their territories and stuff like that and when he's mad at the soldiers he tells them je ne suis content pas de vous i am not happy with you and he'll he'll say all the positive stuff he says in the negative so the way that he would scold them is the same way that he would praise them which it's kind of like your parents saying i am so disappointed in you and you're like no <laughs> Yeah, but uh, there is there was this one guy who um, kind of cracked me up a bit. He was religious and he was writing a letter to his dad telling him about how he substituted uh, Napoleon for God. And I was like, okay, Napoleon equals God. This guy, Pierre-Jacques Rasquinet, an ordinary soldier of the Grand Grand Armée um substituted napoleon emperor of the french with god so you're saying in french but i'll just try and say it in english um at this time i'm abandoning whatever the translation in english is i'm leaving uh god because i serve my emperor but basically what he's saying is yeah you guys know i'm religious but right now i'm a soldier and napoleon is my god and i will focus all of my energies on that which i can understand you know you need someone to believe in might as well be the guy who's leading you into battle and sending you places so i thought that was interesting though absolutely um, i mean napoleon never goes as far as to kind of well certainly as far as my reading of this period goes he never kind of tries to replace god with himself however high an opinion he may or may not have had of himself it was interesting what you were saying about praise uh, earlier as well because one of the things that i was reading i think it was from his time in italy was that people would start becoming almost kind of a little bit needy in terms of wanting his praise to the point where he was very good at kind of withholding it from certain regiments in order to make them fight that much harder. I can't remember the name of the unit now and it's going to bug me for ages, but there's there's a particular unit that writes to him saying, you know, we were disappointed, I think it's the CEO who writes to him, saying, you know, we were disappointed that you didn't specifically praise us um, in your, your latest bulletin. And Napoleon writes back and says, I'll bear what you said in mind, but on this occasion, you didn't do enough to impress me and therefore you didn't merit the inclusion in the bulletin but if you do impress me the next time we fight i will and they did and so he followed through and and did so it's a really clever way of i almost want to say manipulating people to get the most out of them 
yeah, that that is manipulation one on one. Gotta say though, it's impressive. I like it. <laughs> Another of your research that is really interesting um, is the the question of troop motivation, which you touched on a little bit earlier. To me, this is just an endlessly fascinating topic. Uh, I discussed it at length with Ed Koss back in June for Waterloo Remembered when we were talking specifically really about British troops. What's your sense of what motivates soldiers during this period? So what I found is that it was filial love. So when I finished, when I was writing my conclusion, I felt kind of cheesy being like, when Napoleon's tactics ran out, what always was there was love. <laughs> it was love that motivated them, which is true. It was love for your country. It was love for your family. It was love for your friends. It was love for like the surreal life back home as a civilian that they had before. And obviously each person is different. So someone who doesn't have family, I'm sure they're going back for friends or for a lady or for a partner um or maybe some there were soldiers that joined um because they preferred the life of a soldier rather than their occupation but you know they love their family it's their family and stuff so there's always going to be different reasons um but the the like main connecting factor <laughs> is uh was love yeah so yeah. napoleon did motivate them and stuff you know you could say love for love for country uh love for patriotism love for napoleon love for uh my my fellow my fellow soldier homies yeah yeah it's interesting what you're saying there because in my opinion i mean there are a few good books that have been written on troop motivation in recent years one of the best in relation to the french army is michael hughes's forging napoleon's grand armee where he talks about the role of camaraderie uh, which is kind of what you're saying here about kind of, I mean, I would probably use the term loyalty to your comrades. You use the term love for your mm -hmm. fellow, you know, brother in arms, as it were. Yeah. Um, and and Michael Hughes and, and others have all talked about kind of the role of that in preventing soldiers from abandoning their units. Do you see evidence of that in your research or is there some kind of bigger stick that's keeping men with their units when they're on campaign? Um, the stuff that I was focused on was more like the family love, but I did see aspects of it. Um, like that one guy, my, my friend, I think of him as my friend, the memoir guy, um, Jean-Baptiste something, can't remember my friend's name. Um, but he, when he watched his friend die in front of him and then flipped out, you'd see it right there. I had something interesting in my dissertation that I saw, and I think I looked at this book by Rory Muir, M-U-I-R, talked about tactics and the square formation and how like the square formation, part of it was not wanting to leave your, your brothers behind because if one person broke, then everyone was screwed. So there's a bit of that there. Um, but most of the stuff I read in the letters, it wasn't really talking about what was going on. It was kind of just like, hi, mom and dad, I'm good. Can you send me some money? I miss you. Send my love to everyone in our village, because that was usually how the whole village got news and stuff. 
And they would say things like, you're a loving and devoted son, blah, 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 blah. It was very formal. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, there wasn't a lot of speaking about their comrades in arms. I'm sure that there is somewhere because there's so many letters that have been published. Do you know Alan Forrest, the historian? He did this one book that was like a big part of my research um, about the letters of the soldiers, which is at home in Seattle and makes me sad because that was a really solid book. So yeah, anyone who wants to read a book, Alan Forrest wrote one. I can't remember its name, but if you Google Alan Forrest, soldiers, Napoleon, book, letters, I don't know, then you could probably find it. There you go. Top tip, some book by Alan Forrest. <laughs> but in, in fairness, yeah, because he he's is, written a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he is a very prolific and very well regarded scholar of the Napoleonic era. So I completely agree with you in terms of recommending his stuff. I'm going to ask what sounds like a provocative question now, but it's not intended to be. I'm always struck that Napoleon made some pretty offhand comments about his men. So one that springs to mind is one night in Paris will replace them all. Um, on another occasion, he talks about thinking nothing of losing 10,000 men if it achieved his aims. Do you think for all of his interactions with people on a personal level, which he was great at, do you think that he actually valued his men's lives on an individual basis? My answer is yes and no. <laughs> So I've been thinking about this and I can't, I can't give you like a yes or a no, it's both. I think that he liked to think that he valued his men, but I think that also as a commander, he had to think of them as numbers. So I think it goes both ways. I, I feel like um, if you really like project this image of yourself as a man of the people and you say stuff like, my soldiers are my children. Like, you can't be completely cold behind the scenes, you know? You're saying stuff like this all the time. Even if you don't think it at first, I feel like repetition, just like what he did to them, might actually affect him himself. Um, so, but we also, we don't know. He could have just been a cold, icy man behind the scenes. Cold, calculating, logical and not care about them at all. And I don't think we'll ever know. But so that's why my answer is yes and no. I have some, some quotes from him talking about how like his respect for the noble character of the French soldier and affection for his troops remained sincere, apparently, with a, a grain of salt. So from a military correspondence in 1796, so some of his earlier stuff, he says, for I am certain that our victories are due to the bravery and daring of the men, giving them credits and being like, it was them. Um, so he has confidence in his men. And then, so in this military correspondence featuring his departure from the Egyptian campaign in 1799, and so, by the way, these are all written in English because it's a translated book of his letters by some dude who speaks English. So it's not like word by word. There could have been something lost in translation. 
he said to the new head of command in Egypt, the men I entrust to you are like children to me. They have always shown me, even in the times of the greatest hardship, proofs of their affection. Carry on this tradition. It is due both to my special regard and affection for you and to the genuine attachment I feel towards themselves. So that could have been a masterful political play to motivate his new head of command, or it could have been genuine. That is why my answer is yes or no. Yes and no. See, it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned about you know earlier um, letters because I was going to ask what well, earlier examples. I was going to ask, do these efforts to motivate men change over time? Because the French army obviously changed, changes a heck of a lot during this period, from the army of Italy, obviously very poorly equipped, demoralised conscripts, to the more elite troops of the incredibly well-trained Grand Armée of 1805, to a quasi-multinational force that he led into Russia in 1812. Okay, only a fifth of it is non-French, but you know, still significant proportion. Do you see him changing his approach with these different forces? Um, I would be able to answer this if I had all of my research. <laughs> Um, because I think a lot of the quotes in my dissertation that made it into there were from his, the time when he was most successful. And um, the, the non-French troops don't get mentioned very much in my dissertation for some reason. I'm not sure why. I think I was dealing with a lot of different topics. I think that definitely with the bulletins, you can see it. Like the propaganda being like, hey guys, we won everything, even though we didn't. And everyone was really great, even though they're not. But um, I can't, I do wonder if he changed his whole, the blood of the French soldier rhetoric to incorporate the non-French people. I do know, I have this quote somewhere about how he was able to win over um, the non-French soldiers pretty well. Cause he'd go and he'd talk to everyone. And this was written from one of the commanding officers or something. Um, and he would go around talking to the soldiers and the Italian ones and the other ones and stuff would warm up to him as well. So I would guess my answer is uh, I'm not very sure. <laughs> That's fair enough. I mean, you can only work with, with the information that you have to hand, can't you? One final question. What's the emotional legacy of the Napoleonic Wars for these men? because they have to be rehabilitated into French society if they survived, of course. And we often question whether people like Ney had PTSD after the Russian campaign, but plenty, of more, plenty more would have suffered in a similar way. So how do they transition back into civilian life, having devoted, in many cases, you know, their youth to fighting for an empire that has fallen? Yes. So. I tried looking in the memoirs of my buddy Jean-Baptiste something or other um, before this, this call and the memoirs end right after he leaves the army. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. He's like, I'm going home. Yay. And, um, but I would reckon that he would not be, he would not have an easy time of it. Just like from reading his memoirs and seeing how honest he was about the struggles of war. Um, 
my research did not extend towards these soldiers like after the war because um i don't know if there are primary sources as many readily available um to talk about them after but there was this one guy um in my conclusion his name is jean guillot and in his letter in one of his letters to his parents he discloses his changing mentality as a consequence of the environment of warfare that he existed in. And he's basically saying that war has changed him and he's going to return home a completely different man. And he says something like, I might seem like a stranger born of a different mother and father, but I'm still your child. Like, uh, please don't judge me. Like, please just be prepared. So I think that guy probably had some PTSD as well. So there's not, there's not like, it was the letters I read, it was all kind of like, I'm homesick or give me money or I miss you. And I talked about Madupe, uh, homesickness for a bit somewhere in here. Um, severe form of homesickness, Madupe commonly caused soldiers to fall into a deep depression and it was actually recognized by medical opinion, opinions as a serious and incapacitating illness. And so I think that um, the soldiers who suffered that probably had some a rough going of it when they got home as well. Honestly, I think most soldiers would have a rough going of it. Uh, most ordinary soldiers, people who fought, like actually fought and stuff. And then, you know, like that guy, Nay, who was like an officer, right? But, um, you know, all that stuff with Russia. Yeah, it's a tough time, especially back then uh, when you're fighting with swords and stuff, probably see a lot more guts come out. I don't know, what's worse, guns or <laughs> or swords? I mean, they all ultimately serve the same end, don't they? So. Uh... Yeah, but if you're fighting sword to sword, the person's right in your face. So I wonder if it's like slightly worse for PTSD. But that, like you, a little. Not to not to No, 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 I know. I know absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what strikes me is that I was talking to um a, a colleague who works on drone warfare and he was saying that actually you might think that people have this perception of drone warfare, pilots flying drones, you know, it's a bit like a computer game, it's not really real. But actually suicide rates are higher amongst drone pilots than mm. they are amongst regular pilots um so it's it, that's an interesting one in terms of to what extent is is that the case um but you're also talking about bloodier times aren't you you know higher instances yeah, of crime yeah. and and so on so it's it's the whole thing of a part the past being a foreign country yeah i also do wonder if because i have this conversation with my boyfriend sometimes when we watch like historical shows uh where people this is my this is the question we ponder is were people tougher back then because life was harder like uh your children didn't survive all the time you'd push out a bunch of babies and only like half of them would survive people died so young people were dying all the time depending on the time period or the country you saw public executions a lot so death was a lot more prevalent was life as meaningful as we hold it now, did people have like a tougher skin 
also because mental illness wasn't really discussed. Like, yeah, so that's kind of my question that I don't know anyone if anyone can actually answer, but that's kind of my question too about the PTSD is like, were these guys like really struggling? Were some of them able to just brush it off because they'd seen worse? Um, were some of them struggling so much, but because of the like mental health stuff uh, just not existing, it was just a lot harder for them. Um, yeah, so I guess it would be interesting. Kind of hard to say, cause who knows if there's enough sources left to look at that, that still exists today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a need for some kind of study that really digs into the nature of mental health during this period because it, it must have been there you know this isn't a, a modern invention well to the recognition of it is a, is a modern development but the nature of mental health illnesses is not something that's you know new or unique whether it's a case of of recognizing um, ptsd or shell shock or, or whatever it might be um the mm. example that I always end up going back to and people probably bored of me mentioning this is of some trial records from after Waterloo where you've got soldiers who are found aimless and the, the charge is found aimlessly wandering the countryside. Um, mm -hmm. In effect, it sounds like the classic shell shock PTSD thing, but they don't have that kind of conception. Um, and there is a discussion about mental health um, amongst even the rank and file to the extent that when people are tried for the desertion, their most common defense is to say that they were quote out of their mind, which mm. is either a reference to the fact that they're off their, you know, they've got drunk or that um, they they're trying to put forward a, an insanity plea as a defense, which quite often backfires because you've got to be able to prove your insanity. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I don't, like you say, I, I don't know what the answer is in terms of were people tougher, inverted commas, back then. I mean, it's a very different environment. As you say, you would probably be more accustomed to death and more accustomed to hardship. So perhaps you would make less of it than we might do today. Um, you just kind of accept it as, as part of your everyday existence. Yeah, yeah. Probably that too. Yeah, it would be interesting. If someone ever wrote a book. If you ever come across any um, studies or something, send it to me. I will do. Absolutely. Yeah. Malia, this has been great. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, it's been super fun. I feel like my life really had purpose this week when I got to actually do something that I love. Again, history. <laughs> That was Malia Agawa joining me to discuss Napoleon's means of motivating his men. A big thank you to everyone who continues to support the Napoleon Assist on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a patron, prices start from £1 a month and just go to www.patreon.com forward slash the Napoleon Assist to find out more. You'll find that patrons get neat little perks, including their names in the credits. A big thank you to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons who, at the time of recording, are John Haynes, an anonymous Canadian, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, Brendan Teeling, Jamie Kingston, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Rory Muir, and James Bevan. 
Join me next time when I will be speaking to Rob Griffith about the Forgotten Rifleman of the 5th Battalion, 60th Regiment. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.